Hello, everyone, and welcome to the WorldSpark podcast. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. If you've been thinking about test driving a new idea for your rural community, you might want to connect with today's guest. Mary Doyle is founder of a social enterprise called Rural on Purpose. And as you might guess, it's all about people who choose to live rural on purpose and their potential, especially when it comes to entrepreneurial ideas. We're pleased to have Mary join us to share her story and vision for rural community development and entrepreneurship. Hello, Mary, and welcome to Rural Spark. Hello, Helen, and thank you so much for the invitation. You know, when I stumbled upon that name, Rural on Purpose, I knew it was there's some synergy there with what we're doing, and I had to find out more. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And of course, first, I have to ask that obvious question, what is Rural on Purpose? And it's not an easy answer. <laughs> I didn't think it would be. No, you'd, you'd think that it would be when you've got purpose in the actual um, title of your business. But Rural and Purpose is a social purpose business. And our whole goal is to inspire rural communities to action and to connect people, leaders in rural communities together so that they can amplify their own impact. And so we're, we're trying to do that in a number of different ways. But Rural and Purpose is focused on helping rural communities grow and develop and chart their own paths. And you have a, a broad array of experience leading up to this point. Tell us how that, like what led you really to this path? That's an interesting question because I, that's a question I love asking other people. And I would, I would love to know, because I think that everybody ends up in where they are today through very, very different pathways. And it's this magical combination of things that lead you to where you are today and where you're going to be tomorrow. And it's, they're all different. So they're fascinating. I don't know if mine's super fascinating, but I did start out as a high school English teacher and I taught high school for, I think, eight years and had my kids, my two beautiful daughters who are adults and doing their own thing right now. And then um, while I was on maternity leave, I started my own business. So I discovered entrepreneurship at that time. And I started an adult education business. And it went really, really well. It went so well while I was you know, able to experiment and try it out and ended up hiring a bunch of people. And, and um, it was just something that was a natural fit for me. And I didn't, I didn't go back to teaching. I ran that business for about nine years. And after that, it led into economic development. And in economic development, I ended up working with entrepreneurs and helping them start their own business in rural communities. So it was part of a program called Enterprise Facilitation. Amazing program, if anyone wants to check that out. The father of Enterprise Facilitation is an Italian economist by the name of Ernesto Ciroli. So if you are looking for a really great TED talk to watch, mm. look up Shut Up and Listen. That's the title of his TED talk. And, uh, and that's easy to remember. It's and it's it is. It's really entertaining, but very, very passionate speech about what enterprise facilitation is. So I got a really great opportunity to work at kitchen tables with people who are looking to start their own business and build their own dreams. And we use community resource boards to help facilitate that. And so it was the communities that were helping grow their own businesses. And so it was, it was just this great experience that I had at that in economic development that led me to want to do more of that. And so I ended up starting 
co-founding an, an organization called Quinnovation with a local hotelier here, Ryan Williams. Um, right, and we've had him on the podcast yeah, in the early days. Regular yeah. followers will remember. He's a going concern. He's doing pretty amazing work here. He's entering um, federal politics now, so he's, oh, he's wow. con continuing his work. So we got started and we were looking at helping develop one of the one of the projects was working with tech companies in our rural region and helping them to grow and expand. So, you know, we did we did a lot of really good things here. And then after that first year, I handed the reins over and said, I really want to try doing something on my own again, go back to my entrepreneurial route. And build this economic development model that is a social enterprise that focuses on rural development, but without borders. I want to be able to work with whoever wants to work with me, whoever sees value in the, in the work that I'm doing and sees a way to make it fit and connect with their own work. And so that's how Rural and Purpose got started. It really, it started with a manifesto. It didn't start with a business plan. It started with, well, how, what is it that I actually believe what what do I think about rural development and rural communities and what am I trying to convince people or connect people with people on the you know what level am I trying to connect with them so I created this manifesto and uh did you do you mind if I read it no go right ahead okay I guess I turned it into a poster it's on t-shirts and all of that stuff oh, so wow, just, okay it, it just helps keep me grounded and guides me. And, it, and it's a really great way to connect with, with people who are living rural and purpose. So it starts out, we are fearlessly optimistic people living in rural communities. We believe that entrepreneurship is a vehicle for change and a mindset of growth. We don't fear the future, we have faith in it. Constraints are simply catalysts for innovation. Today, we have the opportunity to augment, transform, innovate, and connect like never before in history. We are changing the course of our rural communities with our own wit, wisdom, and ingenuity. We are living rural on purpose. Lovely. That's very uplifting. I can see how that can be a nice grounding statement. And, and when we run into barriers, I think it's good to reread that kind of thing to keep us positive. And so you were doing work kind of in the rural area around Belleville, but rural on purpose, you're engaging far and wide, right? Even beyond Canada. Can you tell us why that is and how you're connecting with people? When I said I wanted to work with whoever wanted to work with me, I just put out the manifesto and I, I started writing, I started blogging. So I have, I have almost 60 different articles and blogs out there in over the last three years about topics related to rural development. And I started getting responses back from people and the responses were coming from people all over and they were connecting on a very, very deep level and saying, you just described me. You're talking about me. You're talking about my life, what I believe, what I want to do, what my dreams are, where I want to go with my community. And then, of course, then they say, well, what's next? How, how do I get involved in this? How do we, how do we build it? And so it, it started that way. And, and it was just, it's, it's been an organic reach. It's been an organic message. And it really hit home because I realized we're talking about rural communities all over the world that are experiencing the same issues and that are looking for solutions. 
And a lot of them have those solutions. So why are we not sharing them? And why are we not talking about them and making sure that everybody and the other, other communities that are looking for solutions can connect with them? So then, you know, a greater purpose kind of takes over and you, you start to focus your efforts on connecting people and connecting solutions and finding ways, more ways to facilitate that, that whole growth of all rural communities. So that's kind of, that's what we're doing today. And, you know, it is, it is something that we're, it's, it's in constant evolution. We're evolving constantly. Like anyone who's in a social enterprise role, you're constantly trying to improve and iterate and make things better. So, and I'm sure you're learning from each collaboration as you go along. And, and I was mm -hmm. reading a little bit about it and I see that a lot of your work around how to bridge that gap from ideas to action, right? To making things happen by people who do have good ideas in rural communities and there's no shortage of that. It's largely built around a pilot model, right? You do pilots. It is. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works and maybe give us an example? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a program developer. I, I'm that's kind of my my thing and my background as a as a teacher, as an entrepreneur, and someone who's working in economic development. It just all fit, and I love building programs. So one of the things that we recognized right away with rural communities was this opportunity around freelance development, and we saw this is pre-COVID. This is three years ago, three and a half years ago, when we we recognized that. 19% of all freelancers in the world already were working and living in rural communities. People didn't know that they're there. Our community economic developers had no way of talking to them, identifying them and knowing who's working from their home and who's doing this freelance work. So we set out to try and figure out how do we talk to these people? How do we find them in our rural communities and find out what they need? How do we provide those services and grow an ecosystem to support them because they're young families and they are bringing their own incomes into rural communities and they're adding all of this value that didn't exist before. So we wanted to grow it. So we, we started out looking at a, a pilot model. Let's, let's just test it. Let's see who is out there. We, we looked at, we looked at the issue of co-working. How do we create co-working spaces in rural communities to support this freelancer remote work group of people. So we wanted to find out if it was something that was that was desirable first. Do people even want it in rural communities? You don't build something in a, in a community if, if people don't want it. So you have to test for that. You have to ask those questions and find out. So is it desirable? Is it feasible? Is it something that, it, that you can actually build in your rural community? Or is it something that's an urban phenomenon and it's not something that, that is gonna work? Is it desirable? Is it feasible? Is it viable? Is it something that you can sustain? Is it something that you'll be able to keep going for years? Even if you build it in a year, are you going to need to find money that you don't have two years down the road to keep it working? So we created a model to try and test that. And we created, um, first of all, it was a 10 week program that we ran in High River, Alberta. And we created a co-working takeover challenge where we turned all of the, the community, all of the businesses in the downtown area into co-working, temporary co-working spaces for one week. So any extra space they had, any, any desk space, any room space, any you know, internet, anything, any service that they could provide 
somebody who was coming from their home into town to work for that one week, you know, what can you do to, to be involved in that? It gave them an opportunity to promote their business. And then it also gave um, them an opportunity to charge and make some extra money for that one week and see if it's something that they could create, use as a secondary income source. So we ran this whole program, created a co-working takeover week. We pulled all of the people who were in their homes out because they were interested in finding out what this was. This is for them. This was for them. And so they came out and we learned about who they were in the community. We found out who the, the freelancers were, remote workers. And the people that created these opportunities downtown got a chance to meet new people, make more money, test out a new business model. In the end, we answered all three of those questions. And the answer was yes, it was definitely desirable. It was definitely viable. And it was it was a feasible thing. We could create that without putting money into big buildings and lots of infrastructure. We could build it with what we already had. Use that underutilized capacity in our communities and help the people who are already possibly struggling to pay their rent anyway and give them another income source. So there was no commitment at the end of it. No one had to continue with it afterwards. We were just trying to test and create this pilot program to see if it's something we want to develop, the community wanted to develop later on. But in the, in the process of doing this, we actually answered all of our own questions and we created the start of an ecosystem that people could build on. So it went even further than what most pilots do. And some of those businesses continued offering the co-working option to people after that one week. And a year later, I was presenting um, with the person from High River at an economic development conference. We were presenting about this, this initial project that we ran, Pilot. And we heard from one of those business owners that said, if it hadn't been for that project, we would have had to have closed our doors. Wow. Because people that signed up and stayed with us for that year and continued to come in and use our services, they paid our rent. Wow. So it was something we realized, not only did we answer our own questions, but we actually provided value to the business owners and the, the community. You know, we didn't even realize it. And I, I think as we ran that program over and over again, we ran it as a 30 day challenge across Canada with six different communities. And in that one week, we created 89 co-working spaces wow. in six communities that didn't have a single co-working space beforehand. So, you know, it, pilots can be really, really effective and they can generate all kinds of momentum and they can create all kinds of hype and you can learn about what, what you already have in your community. So we build pilots with communities and it's not just around co-working. We can come in and help you test something. If you're not sure if it's worth spending money on and investing in, run a pilot, build a pilot and test it live, test right. it live like an entrepreneur, be an entrepreneurial community and test something live and see, see what happens. And the communities that love doing that and that are, that do it really well, they have an energy about them that, mm -hmm. it, that attracts people. So the, that momentum carries them through and helps them build their community. So by actually testing something out that they don't know if it's going to work or not and doing it very openly and, and uh, celebrating that, they're able to attract people. And now it's time for a quick mention of our sponsor, ExploreNet. 
They're fighting to conquer Canada's vast geography and connect rural Canadians to what matters. And they've been doing it since they were founded in Woodstock, New Brunswick, more than 15 years ago. So whether you just need a fast, reliable rural internet connection or you're looking for more services like a home phone, ExploreNet can help. Learn more at ExploreNet.com. That's X-P-L-O-R-N-E-T.com. Right. And it's fairly low risk, right? Like you say, you know, you can, it's just, you can do it. You did it for a week and you did it in different communities. And so it can be with size and scale that suits a certain community. You mentioned about actually, you know, getting these freelancers out and coming together and people realizing who is an entrepreneur in their community and who's a freelancer. I would take a guess that the most rural communities across Canada don't have a really good grip of the scale of the people in their communities, in their regions who are freelancing at home, tucked away and maybe doing interesting work, but not really connecting as much. And there's different ways and a co-working pilot like that can be one way to bring them out. You're absolutely right. And you really need to know who's in your own backyard. And there are different ways to do that. But if you're asking the question and if you're putting something out there and saying, I'm really interested in finding out more about what you do. People love to have those conversations. And sometimes it's just a matter of asking the right questions and, and providing a way for people to come together. And when you do that, I think you'll be surprised at what you learn. So I love building ecosystems and starting with something that already exists. So, you know, usually there's, there's a group in your community that's energized that's got lots of things going on and got people that are attracted to them and watching them all the time and involved in what they're doing. Don't start from scratch. Start with something that already exists in your community and give them that energy and say, I want to work with you. How can we, how can we do this together? And how can we make something even bigger? I talk about that as desire line development. And when we work with rural communities, we absolutely look for what urban planners call desire lines. And a desire line is like a footpath. So when planners are planning to build a sidewalk somewhere, the really good ones, the smart ones, will take a look at where the footpaths already exist. You know, the beaten path in the grass that people are actually walking on naturally, organically anyway. And they'll reinforce those pathways if they can, because those are the paths that are already being used. The, one, the other ones will just build up, build a, a, you know, a sidewalk with cement and they'll put signs up and they'll say, walk this way. And nine times out of 10, people are going to continue to take those user generated footpaths, those desire lines and cut across instead of taking your sidewalk where you told them to walk because they trust them because they've been doing it for a long time. And it's a metaphor for our communities. If we can find those desire lines in our communities, the things that are already working, people are already using them and there's an energy, you know, reinforce those things. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest message that I hope that rural communities get out of, you know, the work that we do is we're really, really about helping to, to identify those things that are happening in rural communities and, and making them so much bigger and better if they want them to be. Right. It's not about reinventing the wheel or starting square one. There's all kinds of great things happening that we can, you know, draw upon, right, and scale up and, and renew in many ways to, to have new enterprises and new, new forms of revenue and community development. You, and you, we were talking about this before the, the show started, that whole, that whole reinvention piece that, you know, we have to adapt and we have to find new ways to, you know, do things. And those 
same clubs and organizations and people that are doing this work in, in communities, they're iterating as well. And they're trying to find new ways to add on to what they're already doing. And they need that support. So, and they're the people that are living rural on purpose. They're the ones that are in the community doing it. And they're the ones that need the support. And you know what's interesting this year, Mary, of course, I have to ask you about is there's a whole new wave of people who are choosing to live rural on purpose, right? There's, we're seeing this unlikely and unpredicted trend, uh, reversing the out-migration to some extent from urban to rural. And where I come from in Nova Scotia, it's, Nova Scotia has been perhaps one of the biggest beneficiaries in Canada of migration. Uh, people from Ontario and uh, BC and other areas buying houses this year during the pandemic, sight unseen. And, you know, that's just a total foreign concept um, from, from my uh, years there. Um, I, I'm interested to see what you think about that happening now and what maybe some of the challenges and opportunities that might come along with that growth. Thank you. I, I, I think that's a really important question. All I have is my observations now and from before the pandemic. We used to talk about this and say that one of these days that pendulum is going to swing back from rural depletion to rural gain and that momentum is going to happen. It, it took a pandemic to make it happen this quickly, but we are absolutely seeing that everybody's talking about it. It's a, it's a really big deal. And I think we have to be careful what we wish for because people are moving into rural communities, some of them for the right reasons. And when I say right reasons, I mean, because they want to live rural on purpose mm -hmm. and they want to become part of a community, a specific community. But the people that are already there are living rural on purpose. And we have to remember, remember that. I, I wrote a whole blog on this. I was trying to explore what I think might be happening as more of a, a push from the cities rather than a pull to the country. And when you have something like that, you have to be really careful because it's not necessarily sustainable. And it's not necessarily going to be something that's, that's great for the community. If people are leaving because they're leaving something behind rather than they're being attracted to something. And there's also a, a, this fear of missing out. The, the FOMO is incredible right now. And people are feeling like if I don't buy my property now, I'm never going to get a chance to do that. And the prices are going to be out of, out of my, um, it won't be a buying opportunity for me anymore. So I have to buy something now. And they're not necessarily thinking it through really, really well. This has been one heck of a year. We know that. And we, our lives in rural communities have not I don't think been impacted quite the same way that they have in urban centers where they're in very, very small spaces, very confined spaces, and they are on top of each other a lot of times. And the reason that they live in the city, all the benefits, all the, you know, being able to go out and eat and go to different events and activities and the large scale activities where you have lots and lots of people and they, the crowds and all of the, the things that are the amenities of the cities, they were gone overnight. So they're in tight spaces. They can't go out. It's a risk, a health risk to go out. And everything's been shut down. The lights have been turned off in the cities. So we have been able to enjoy our outdoors, continue to enjoy our, 
outdoors and live a lot of our lives without as much disruption as somebody who's living in the city. So that's attracting people because they're leaving something behind that, that is not comfortable for them. So mm-hmm. I, I, get, I get worried a little bit that people are jumping on a bandwagon and it's more about a fear of missing out than it is about wanting to be part of a specific community. And I think that we're going to have some identity discussions in the future with some rural on purpose people who have been living in the communities and some of the new people moving in. I think there are going to be challenges for sure. Gentrification is a, is a, is an issue when, you know, you have people buying houses in communities at really, really, really high prices and it's price house ownership out as an option for a lot of people who live in rural communities. So you have a lot of that displacement that's going to be happening as well. That's going to cause some more tension. So those are things that, you know, it happens with growth and we're going to have to deal with it, but there is also an opportunity. There is new money coming in. There is new ideas, new energy, new people coming into the community. And we need that. We've needed that for a long time. So it's just a matter of being open to people both sides, having lots of conversations um, both sides, and trying to find a new way forward in our rural communities. I think that it can be a really good thing. I think there will be a lot of challenges, and um, it's going to be something we're going to have to navigate. As long as we're careful about it, smart about it. (laughs) As long as we're smart about it, and as long as we don't give up our agency, because we understand what is a fit and what isn't a fit. And sometimes, you know, we, we get really excited about something from outside coming in that's going to change us in that some people are afraid of it, some people blindly follow it. And I think both of those things can cause some problems. So I think just as long as we're having really good conversations, and we're really talking things through, and we have great leadership, We really need your communities. If you have great leadership and people who are guiding this development and they they can see two steps ahead Mm -hmm. and they're working that whole process, I think that we're going to be in good hands. It's when you're reacting all the time to something that's happened that you can come, you can, you can be in trouble. But if your leadership is ahead, staying ahead of it, and they're they're strong leaders who are who are growing your community purposefully, Mm -hmm. then I think that can be a good thing. Yeah, that's really good food for thought. I think sometimes it's easy to put on rose-colored glasses, especially if we haven't had any in-migration, you know, in a long time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, but we do have to have our eyes wide open and and see both sides and some of the challenges. These things aren't going to go totally smoothly all the time. But as you say, it's great to see new, new ideas, new investments coming into the communities, and there's some great opportunities there as well. Thank you very much, Mary, for taking the time to share uh, your thoughts on and your, your story of Rural on Purpose, because I think it's a great concept. We're excited by the pilot project opportunity, and I, I'd be happy to take a deep dive on one of your pilot projects in the future um, as a case study uh, on the podcast and take a closer look at what's happening at the community level. So we'll stay in touch about that. I would love that, Helen. And I think we'll be staying in touch anyway, because I, I think, you know, we've connected before the, the whole thing even started. So exactly. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so exactly. much for this. And thank you for the work that you do. You're doing amazing work getting information out there to people. 
just listening to your podcast before this episode, I listened to a whole bunch of them and I learned so much and I want to connect with a bunch of the people that you've already met. So I'll- Excellent. Well, that's what we're hoping to do is share stories that other people can, other communities can benefit from. And when people get in touch with each other through the podcast, that's wonderful too. So thanks for sharing that, Mary, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Helen. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week. The Rural Spark team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seabar. Music by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.